As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Okay, my arch theme here, folks, is the change, and the change is the media, the immediacy of the imagery, what we see on social media, what we're seeing with all the modern technology makes for a different conflict, a different war. With wonderful perspective on this is John Lieber, head of research, managing director uh, at Eurasia for the United States. He's worked with a senator from Kentucky for years on the Hill. Hey, John, honored to speak to you. I want to go back to your classroom at Tufts University years ago. You and I lived, you and I studied, 1967 and 1973. This is totally different. And yet, are we fighting the last war? I mean, this conflict has been uh, raging for decades. And, you know, the difference right now, of course, is that Israel is targeting Hamas in Gaza and trying to wipe out their leadership. So it's an enemy that doesn't have tanks and doesn't have planes. It's an enemy that they're trying to, you know, they're going to have to go into civilian er uh, areas to target. And, uh, you know, the, the Israeli defense forces over the years have become, uh, have, 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 have been attacking these lands. And uh, it's really difficult to get after Hamas that way. You know, I think one of the big questions is, is whether or not there's going to be a ground invasion uh, anytime soon. And I suspect that one of the things Biden is in the Middle East trying to hold off on is that ground invasion because of the risks of these horrible uh, uh, atrocities that happen against civilians in times of war. And that's got to be one of Biden's main objectives, in addition to trying to stabilize the region generally and make sure that, most importantly, Iran stays out of this. John, we know what Israel's objective is, the ultimate objective, you alluded to it, wipe out Hamas. Let's talk about how difficult that is to achieve. Where is the leadership of Hamas? Where does the financing for Hamas come from? How do you wipe out Hamas purely just by going into Gaza and having a full ground invasion? Well, obviously you can't. And I think what time has shown is that when going after these terrorist organizations, even when you go after the head of uh, the head, when you successfully take out the head of these organizations, there's other leaders who will rise up. Uh, the U.S. has been targeting Hamas uh, financing networks for decades uh, through you know, money laundering efforts. Uh, they're going after their ability to conduct uh, financial transactions in, in crypto. Um, but I, you know, it's unlikely to me that even if the, the Israel uh, Israel 
israelis are completely successful in this campaign that the threat on their borders is going to go away because of the fact that there's so much uh history and uh, uh anger here and you know getting rid of hamas probably means somebody else comes up especially given all of the protests and anger there's been some fiery rhetoric out of iran over the past couple of days threatening uh some full-scale invasion of israel if there is any kind of ground escalation into uh gaza how can you read between the lines to understand just how much resolve there is by Iran to get more intimately involved to order Hezbollah troops to uh, come in from the north? Yeah, that's one of the big questions in this war right now is does Hezbollah get involved? Does the, the war expand uh, Israel's nor- northern border? And I think it's notable and interesting that the U.S. and Israel have really gone out of their way to say, you know, we don't think Iran was directly involved in the attacks against Israel that occurred last weekend. Of course, Iran is complicit in financing Hamas, financing Hezbollah, and giving them support over the years. So right now, it looks like you know the U.S. goal and the Israeli goal is to keep the Iranians out of it. That doesn't mean you won't see over a longer period of time kind of a shadow war that the Israelis have been conducting against Iran continue. Uh, that may not mean direct armed conflict, but it could mean cyber attacks, uh, potentially targeted targeted assassinations and things like that. So far, Iran's giving no indication that it wants to be involved, but is sending really strong warnings that if the Israelis escalate, they could get involved. And that is really what makes the situation such a powder keg. John and Tom earlier this morning were really rightly pointing out how little we actually know, how difficult it is to ascertain with any clarity the facts on the ground in a fast-moving war with a lot of uh, sort of people of varying dependency giving information. John, how much has the landscape shifted over the past 12 to 18 hours, given all the protests, given the outrage, given the statements from Egyptian uh, and Qatar and uh, Saudi Arabian leaders? Bombing at the hospital was obviously a major event uh, in the course of this short war so far. But, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity about who did it, how many people were killed. And it's really, really difficult to ascertain the facts because there's no there's not a lot of independent media on the ground. It's not like a lot of forensic investigators can get into Gaza to figure out what actually happened. Some of the photographic evidence that came out this morning suggests the blast wasn't as large as initially said. But I think the key point here is that with Israel launching attacks on civilian populated areas, if it wasn't this hospital attack, it would have been something else. And it was only a matter of time before anger at the uh, Israeli defense forces spilled over into the you know the, the uh, Arab streets and led to some blowback on Israel just because of the nature of these operations. And so you've got a very uh, un, uh, uncertain information environment and a very uh, uh, deadly uh, military environment. And that's a that's a that that, that and so the battle of the narrative is going to be really really, really difficult for any one side to win um, in this situation. John, let's talk about the military aspect of this as well, and let's finish there. Just going through this major monster deterrence that the U.S. has been building up in the eastern Mediterranean, in addition to two aircraft carriers and the ships escorting them. Had a report from the Washington Post yesterday that the U.S. is also sending an amphibious task force aboard warships. John, how meaningful is that as a deterrence in the eastern Med? 
I mean, militarily, nobody can defeat the United States, right? I mean, it's the most powerful army that's ever existed. It's got vast, seemingly limitless resources. There's some question as to what ability they'd have to fight uh, and to you know support the Ukrainian effort and support the Israelis. But I think that the real question, uh, if I'm one of the regional players who are looking at getting involved in this in this conflict, is does the U.S. have the political will to get involved in such a conflict? And I, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's difficult it's difficult to see the U.S. Um, committing troops on the ground here, but they obviously so far have been supporting the Israelis. And I think what this really is is a show of force that's meant to deter any action. So there's no question that if there were to be any uh, additional strikes beyond Gaza, uh, that the U.S. could get involved and win this decisively. Hey, John, good to get your perspective. We'll catch up soon, hopefully. John Lieber there of Eurasia Group on the current situation on the ground in Israel and across the Middle East at the moment. We do have to focus on oil, given that we have seen that as the place that people are expressing some of their concern about the unrest percolating uh, around some of the uh, attacks, the explosions, the situation in the Middle East. Joining us now is Bloomberg's Will Kennedy in London. And Will, I just want to get your sense of what people in the oil market are looking at to understand how to play a fraught and very unclear story. Uh, fraught and unclear, I think, is exactly right. And I think that the oil market feels that to some extent. I think the word I would use is twitchy. As things stand, there is no particular reason that oil flow should be disrupted or that oil should go a lot higher from here. Although there are scenarios where things become a lot more drastic. And that's what is making people uh, slightly twitchy, as I say. The most uh, extreme scenario is, of course, Iran's involvement in a broader conflict. And that's why some of the headlines today where Iran said that they would embargo Israeli oil imports uh, got the market going. Now, it's a rhetorical device. Iran imports very little oil, 200,000 barrels a day. It gets it from non-Middle Eastern countries, uh, places like Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, and other people wouldn't join in the embargo anyway. So it's not a fundamentally important piece of news, but this increase right. in rhetoric gets the market excited. Will, the map out on 1967 and 1973 is something like 140 miles from the southern edge of Gaza into Egypt, spilled into Egypt, down to the Suez Canal. In any of this, is the Suez Canal at risk? I don't think that's a fundamental concern for oil traders, but I think that shipping is a concern in more extreme Expand scenarios. On that. So the place so the place that people worry about are the Straits of Hormuz, the gap of the you know the the place at which the Persian Gulf joins the Indian Ocean, through which all the oil exports from southern Iraq, from Iran, from Kuwait, from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE, they all go through this pinch point over which uh, uh, Iran has a big amount of control. So the most extreme scenario that people worry about, the, the scenario that would send oil uh, way past $150, is if shipping became impeded through the Straits for Mouths. Now, it's not likely. I don't think people need to worry about that right now. But that is the extreme case, the, the worst case scenario that people think about as this situation develops. Uh, interesting uh, to see. Will Kennedy, if I look then at oil here, are you, it's Javier Blas and your entire team, particularly the team in the trenches here of hydrocarbons, are you framing out a path to 100? Are you even able to do that with this geopolitical uncertainty? 
I think it's quite binary. I think the main scenario is that we stay in the sort of uh, 80 to 95 range. There's a sort of $5 risk premium in the market now. That's what a senior oil trader described to me in a conversation yesterday that this whole crisis has probably added five bucks. But in most scenarios, there's not significant disruption to oil flows and things carry on pretty much as they right. are and there's concern about the macro and the buyback. But there is a binary scenario. There's right. a, an extreme but unlikely scenario where prices go much higher. And one interesting thing we've seen is some activity in the options market where people are buying calls well above $100, which shows that there are people who are buying protection against those right. unlikely but severe, severe scenarios. Will Kennedy stay with us, Lisa, the emotion of the president of the United States speaking to uh, people, first responders and people who are directly associated with the horror uh, in the eastern Mediterranean, in Israel and in Gaza. This comes after a reported meeting between President Biden and the war cabinet, including Benjamin Netanyahu. A big question around what the focus was, given that diplomacy has really uh, been at least put on pause, if not shattered, due to some of the reactions overnight. Now, <coughs> President Biden going around around and meeting with some of those in Israel in the show of support that he is is that he is demonstrating. It, it, it's a diplomatic issue here, but what I find so so fundamental is the immediacy of this new war or the immediacy, you know, to take it away from war of conflict and that the film is in real time and it adjusts the diplomacy and the optionality in real time. There's a question also about any kind of escalation, which is what people in the market have been watching. I am curious Will Kennedy with us still here. And I am curious from your vantage point how you interpreted some of the uh, Iranian rhetoric saying that they were going to uh, call for an Israeli embargo on oil, talking about the potential for escalation. How are people in your industry reading through this to understand what's real, what's potentially disruptive, and what's not? I think the comments from Iran today were rhetoric. I don't think they will have much real-world impact. As I said, Iran, uh, sorry, Israel report, imports just over 200,000 barrels a day. That's minuscule in the context of the global market. It gets that oil mostly from uh, countries in the former Soviet Union. But the rhetoric matters here. The, the background matters here. And as the situation deteriorates, as uh, Iran's uh, words become more severe, I think that worries traders that they have to think about right. worst case scenarios, as I said earlier. And, and that, that's the background. They're looking right. for any signs what worries them about Iran stepping it up. Well, Kennedy, thank you for the oil brief from you and your team, uh, particularly in Europe and uh, in uh, Dubai. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, 
Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Joining us now with decades of perspective on the shifts in global Wall Street, Gerard Cassidy, to say he's large cap bank analyst at Canada's RBC Capital Markets, barely describes a perspective. Gerard, to rephrase my question to Shanali, where she beat me down and said, Tom, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me go to you, Gerard, to save the day. And that is, I'm sensing a new global Wall Street. They really want persistent cash flows. Is James Gorman showing the future to the other banks? Tommy, I think you're really onto something and you've got to give James Gorman credit. He's really changed Morgan Stanley from where it was back in 2009 when it was heavily reliant on trading and investment banking and has diversified into the wealth management or retail brokerage business, if you want, as well as asset management. And it really comes down to consistency of earnings or consistency of cash flow, as you point out. And that's what Goldman tried to do with their expansion into the consumer banking business, which has failed miserably, of course, and they're exiting that now. They want the model like a JP Morgan, which is diversified revenue, or Morgan Stanley, which is less diversified than JP Morgan but it's still more diversified than where it was back in 2009. Joe, as you know, banks have been a pretty lousy investment in the stock market this year. It's JP Morgan versus everyone else. JP Morgan up year to date by 10%, everybody else down, and some of them down hard. Joe, what separates what's happened at JP Morgan from the rest? Is it just First Republic? Hey John, that's part of it, but the performance for JP Morgan, even prior to them acquiring First Republic, was better than the pack. And I think what you have here is a flight to quality. Everybody knows JP Morgan is one of the premier U.S. global bank. It's demonstrated that with very good results, strong leadership, of course, under Jamie Dimon and his senior management team. And every time, John, we go out and talk to institutional investors, the scar tissue from March and May is very thick and people are underweight the banks. And when we talk to them, they always tell us we're underweight the banks, but we own one bank. JP Morgan. JP Morgan is owned around the world. When we look back at this period, Gerard, are we going to say that this was the year that JP Morgan consolidated its heft at the expense of a lot of smaller banks? I, I would say, Lisa, that what JP Morgan has done is shown that the, the diversity of revenue and very sharp, you know, very focused management by the Jamie Dimon and his senior team really has demonstrated really strong numbers. We were talking a moment ago, Tom mentioned return on equity. And if you look at the consumer banking business for bank America under Moynihan, Diamond, and J.P. Morgan, the consumer banking businesses are earning close to 40% return on equity. And as we all know, that's incredibly high for banking businesses. That's what's driving it. And J.P. Morgan is one of the leaders in consumer banking such as and Bank America. They are, though, the leading uh, players at a time when they can be selective for the top-rated consumers, right? And this is something that we pointed out, uh, according to Shanali Basik, our own Shanali Basik, yesterday. This morning, what we're not talking about, Citizens Financial missing on net interest income, United Community missing on net interest income, Ally Financial missing on net interest in, uh, margin, and also having fewer auto loan originations than previously thought. How much is this story dividing even further between the biggest banks 
and the regionals that are still in a world of hurt. Lisa, it's a good point because some of them have been, she picked out amongst the big regional banks. Citizens is actually the only one that is missed today. When you look at M&T, U.S. Bancorp, uh, and others, their inlines are slightly better. But, but you're right about certain banks have missed. And it has to do with, and you touched on it in your earlier comments, about the non-interest-bearing deposits. The banks with the non-interest-bearing deposits are going to do very well in this higher rate environment because those deposits don't pay any interest, obviously, but they don't move either. Um, people need operational accounts personally. We all do, as you know, as well as companies. And that money is gold in an environment like today. And the banks with the higher levels of non-interest bearing deposits will do pretty well. Jared, I have to admit, when I read the comments from Brian Moynihan with David Weston in that interview, I was kind of surprised, Jared, because he was talking about the consumer slowdown. Can we just finish there? Retail sales looked great yesterday, really broad-based, big upside surprise. Then the Bank of America boss comes out and says the Fed has basically achieved what it wanted to achieve. We've got a consumer slowdown. Joe, is that a consumer slowdown for Bank of America, or is that a broader story for the economy? Which one is it? John, John, good point. And the cross-currents today, it's always easy to say today is more challenging than 10 years ago or during the financial crisis. It's always challenging, but the cross-currents today are pretty strong, and you just summed it up very well. So we're hearing from some folks, the consumer is slowing down, but then you see the retail sales number, and it was quite impressive. And if you look at the real GDP now number, which comes out of the Atlanta Fed, which is the current estimate for real GDP this quarter, third quarter, uh, it's, it's over 5%. It just is crazy. But I would say that it's not Bank America specific. And I would say Moynihan, in response to my question on the call, actually, he was pointing out that he thinks it's going to stay around this level. The, the higher spending a year ago was unusually strong for them. High single digits. Now it's around 4% should trough out about these levels, but it's still positive growth. They've been more selective about the clients they serve. Lisa and I have been talking about this for the last 24 hours, actually off the back of the data that Shinali shared with us. These credit scores of these customers, Jared, are so, so high. Who are they serving in this country? Just a really small slice of the economy. I think they're serving guys like you, John. They're serving all the, you know, the, the higher quality credits. So it's close no, to 800, right. Gerard. Don't disrupt it. Yeah, yeah right. but I'm at 242. Very focused, so be nice. very focused on it. How's your credit rate? 242. 242. Yeah. Thank you. But, but, it doesn't go but, there. But, quick, but quickly, John, you're bringing up a really good point, and I recommend. I know you guys are busy, but look at their slide they put in their deck, Bank America, where they compare themselves today to 2009. Totally different company, de-risked, and you put your thumb on it. They're going, you know, higher scored consumer as well as corporates. Joe Cassidy. Joe, good to catch up. Always is of RBC. He is Senior Vice President of Stability at Deutsche Bank. Vikram Chada joins us now, Chief Global Strategist, Head of Asset Allocation as well. What an urge to go to cash right now or go to five and point XX percent money market fund. Describe how you tell the Deutsche Bank world, don't go to cash. Uh I think that, you know, if you think about the equity market, you think about earnings, uh, most important, basically fundamental, near and medium term, I would argue. And the story with earnings is a very simple story. Uh, They bottomed in the fourth quarter of last year. We've had solid sequential growth in the first quarter, Mm -hmm. second quarter. 
uh, we are pretty constructive on where we get in the third quarter. Right. So far, what we've gotten is better than our constructive view, is the way I would put it. Uh, How do you, but I went back yesterday, Binky, and I looked at World War II, and I went right for, you can do this on the Bloomberg, folks. You look right from Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. out to VJ Day, mm-hmm. and it was a nice vector up through the nominal GDP of a war economy and all that. Now, this is not an analog to that, sure. but the emotion is still there. Right. How do you contain your emotion? motion when you're asset allocating with bond price down yield up. So I, I, I think actually the S&P 500, the market is controlling its emotions. And I think the reason is it uh, understands pretty well what happened the last time around, which is you know not very long ago, a year and a half ago, when uh, Russia, Ukraine started, you know, the market sold off. We were down 8%, three weeks. We recovered in another three weeks, right back to where we were. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, it just tells you it, 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 that, by the way, happens to be almost exactly the typical playbook for geopolitical risks and events. And so, you know, given that the market saw this movie not very long ago, uh, it is a bit hesitant, basically, to, uh, you know, do the same thing again. What we had last year, as you know, was an energy shock. Sure. Arguably, in some ways, a little bit more insulated relative to the 70s, given where crude production is in America currently, which is at all-time highs through 13 million barrels a day. The concern now is about America's ability to support these wars. There was a headline yesterday from our team here at Bloomberg that the White House is eyeing $100 billion of Ukraine, Israel and border aid. Mm-hmm. Can this country afford those kind of things, given where yields are at the moment? Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, it still can. I would say that the rise in interest rates and the focus on the interest cost of the U.S. government, uh, which is not high, but what everybody looks at is the projection going forward, and that's what you should focus. So, you know, it's become a talking point. So it's a good starting point for actually discussing the fiscal sustainability of the U.S., uh, I'd say so far, when interest rates were so low, you know, nobody was really talking about the deficit and what needs to be done about it. You talked about the conditioning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the conditioning of the recessionistas that were wrong, and that people are saying put this time around. Does that make this market more vulnerable to an actual pullback in the face of some sort of surprise? Does that make you more concerned about your base case of an above average rally? I I, I think the way that you want to answer that question is by taking a look or through the lens basically, of uh, 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 equity market positioning. Um, And here I would focus on, I would break up the positioning, you know, there's the systematic strategies, uh, which is rules-based, and and, and then there's everybody else, which is uh, who we call the discretionary equity investors. And, you know, in July, they raised their positioning for the first time in uh, more than a year. I would say, you know, it's really a FOMO pressure. We looked for a pullback. You look at that positioning today, it has come in. It is sitting right back in the range that it's been in since April, May of last year, which is just a little bit underweight. So, you know, a year and a half, there have been plenty of concerns. Uh, uh, I understand this is a new concern, of course, but there have been plenty of concerns and shocks over the last year and a half, and they didn't budge. So, you know, I I, I would argue... uh, 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 
I mean, we were in the middle of a pullback already, so you know that's why positioning went down. And so positioning is already basically at or, or slightly below neutral. What history would tell you is that you don't necessarily want to go underweight here unless you know you can time. I mean, the playbook would tell you it's really tough because it's three weeks and it's big move down, big move up. Yeah. Um, how much uh, have you changed any aspect of your view over the past, say, two weeks, three weeks, as we've seen a complete change in the yield regime and we've seen a complete shift in potential geopolitical tensions? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I haven't changed my view at all. I would argue, of course, you know, this is a new negative shock, uh, and I would argue it's probably a restraining factor on the upside because uh, risk appetite is going to be a little bit cautious. Uh, but, you know, the view is based on what's happening with the fundamentals uh, and I would say so far you know it, 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 the data actually reinforces the view rather than anything else I'm looking at Chada the great Alan Ruskin young George Cerevelos take the combination of all your work at Deutsche Bank and to me the immovable force here which is the Lawrence McDonald idea there's just a pile of money out there mm -hmm. to support the bid across most, if not all, asset classes. Is that true that, that you and I have never seen the trillion dollar pile of money that's got to find a warm place to go? So, so I, I don't really think, you know, the, 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 the equity market performance or resilience is, is really coming from that. I think it's actually just simply, you know, the economy is playing out. I mean, you look at I, I, I yesterday's data where, you know, you got this very, very strong response in uh, the bond market. Um, but if you take a look at the data, I mean, retail sales, you know, is a nominal variable. So the first thing that you should do is look at it in real terms, which would tell you something about the volumes that people are consuming. Once you do that, the picture changes completely. Uh, retail sales, the real retail sales were growing in a very clear trend channel it, prior to the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic, for reasons that we all know, caused uh, uh, you know spending to go up, came down a little bit, went sideways for a while. But for the last nine months, year, including yesterday's data point, there is nothing to see there. We are just growing in the middle of the trend channel. I think the surprise is that everybody's looking mm -hmm. for things to fall. Uh, it's a year now. Uh, and so, you know, right. it, it, I, I think it's the expectations that are low rather than... Uh, Binky, thank you. Binky Chatter at Deutsche Bank. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
We had the same conversation, I believe it was April, at other institutional meetings of the concern of EM, with a brief this morning with all the news flow, including in the Eastern Mediterranean. Diana Omoa joins us uh, with Kirkuswald Asset Management and on desks of EM market makers for years. Uh, I, I, it's so good to talk to you, particularly off the Barry Eichengreen paper at Jackson Hole and what uh, Joyce Chang talked about at IMF. How bad is it? Mexico is stellar performer even there. Peso off the high is a weaker 8%. Um, well, I think what's happening right now is actually the dollar has reemerged again. Um, there's been a huge amount of upside surprises from a U.S. economy perspective, and that's giving a bid to the dollar. Um, additionally, you have geopolitics, and people are buying dollars as a safe haven. So the combination of those two is taking off some of the shine in emerging market currencies that we'd seen up until the summer. Stan Fisher wrote that little red book everybody was forced to read. I think it was 1999, one year after 1998. Mm -hmm. Are we anywhere near the instabilities of a given crisis in Ecuador, a crisis crisis in Mexico, for that matter, or a crisis in Southeast Asia? What's the level of instability you perceive in EM? Uh, much less than during COVID, um, because I think a lot of the vulnerabilities were addressed during that period. The insolvent economies are already talking to the IMF, and I'm sure you heard a lot of that in Morocco. Um, the IMF Tom, is... don't ask the, about Argentina. Okay, continue. <laughs> the IMF is um, standing ready to support economies. Um, so we don't necessarily think in the next one to two years we are likely to see anything. There's maybe one or two credits that look vulnerable, that have maturities coming. But broadly speaking, I think EM should be able to muddle through. In 30 years' time, will we have a restructuring plan for the United States of America? Is that where <laughs> things are going? Where's this headed? Where is this going? When you speak to emerging market nations, how are they thinking about what's taking place in America? For all the preaching they've heard about how they should manage their finances, what are they saying about this in Washington? Well, they've clearly lost the handle on fiscal in the U.S. It feels like whatever is happening, whether it's political impasse, the answer is let's spend some more when it's... Um, geopolitics, the answer is let's spend some more. And you've lost your price-insensitive buyer. We had um, the, the QE that was supporting this. Now the markets have to mm -hmm. figure out how much premium you need to be if you expect more issuance to come forward. Yeah, mom moments ago, Lisa, Damien Sasser are out watching this, and he makes clear he agrees with Diana. He sees quality reserves at EM. Right. What does quality mean at a time where you've got a treasury yield that is uh, going up, up, up and away? Uh, Diana, I do want to just sort of put a bow on that point. Are you saying that we have seen the reaction function to weakness? We have seen the reaction function amid a search for safe havens and treasuries no longer get that bid in a reliable way? Well, they got the bid when we had the geopolitic he headlines a couple of weeks ago. Um, you saw them move in treasuries, um, which rallied as people still saw them as a safe haven. But despite that ongoing, as soon as we had a bit of stability, markets were quick to unload these treasuries. Because what are we hearing? Um, there's another 100 billion potentially that's going to be spent um, to support these economies. And markets simply don't have the appetite. Do you think that this pain will be reserved to the U.S. government debt market? Or is it the kind of theory where when the U.S. catches a cold, the rest of the developing world catches a flu? 
Well, I think there's two big elephants in the room, the US and uh, the BOJ, where sovereign debt issues or sustainability have been a concern, um, but more of a slow-burning concern for a while. Now, while these are playing out, I think they will tend to take everything with them, but it's the speed of the move that matters. And we've had a pretty aggressive move in treasuries. So if, you know, going forward, we say maybe treasuries can go from four and a half to five and a half, but we're not necessarily going to see that happening in a six week period. I think markets can, can handle that. Where can we hide? Where can we hide in the You know what I'm going to say? Emerging markets. Uh, You're actually getting paid to do the work now in EM. EM high yield, yielding north of 10%. EM IG yielding north of 6%. um, Looks like an interesting space. Um, That said, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Tom mentioned Argentina. You know, we still have cases like that that look very vulnerable. I think this is a period where if you do your bottom-up security analysis and you know the stories that you're buying really well, there's a lot of opportunities in emerging markets. What about Turkey? Fascinating leadership shift taking place in that country. What is going on? I mean, it's like a total... We had the same outcome in the elections, but it's like a totally different leadership. It's amazing. Yeah, so they've embraced um, orthodox policies now. They're speaking the market talk and markets are responding well to that. Um, We've seen aggressive rate hikes and a commitment to actually fight inflation, which is refreshing to see. When you talk about developing markets, I have to think about what's going on right now, excuse me, in the Middle East and just wonder how closely you're following this as a potential, not only humanitarian and a question around what's going to happen and how wide the conflagration goes, but what this means for the ability to invest in some of these nations. Well, it's clearly a sad turn of events, um, So, and we're obviously following it very closely. I think what, what the big concern is, um, beyond the humanitarian cost of lives, is what does this actually mean for, um, one, the region, stability within the broader region? Um, are we going to see spillover effects in the Middle East? Are other countries going to get pulled into this? I, and you've seen actually markets repricing. You've seen CDS in some of these Middle Eastern economies actually move quite high because markets are assigning a premium that it's a non-insignificant risk that you could see spillover um, risks coming in. And I think broadly speaking beyond the Middle East, um, it's oil prices obviously is the next big one because you have this potential supply side shock and that could actually make monetary policy much trickier going forward if you see inflation starting to pick up again. Diana, this was great. It always is. It's got to catch up. Don't be a stranger. Diana Ramoa there of Kirkus World Asset Management. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.